Greetings and welcome to episode 41 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Well, here we are, episode 41. We have reached the final topic that I include in my narrative of modern Chinese history. Okay, China since Mao, since Mao's death. And here I'm really just going to outline big major themes. I'm not going to get down into the nitty gritty of things that are reported in the newspapers year after year after year. Okay, I have a rule. There's a reason for this. Okay, I have a rule. I don't go past really the year of my birth. Once I get to a point in history in which I'm alive, okay, for me, that's sort of the cutoff of history and something that's different than history, at least in the way that we analyze it. Okay, um, it's helpful when you're trying to talk about history. Um, the closer you can get to an objective perspective, the better your history is going to be. Well, how do you approach objectivity? True, 100% objectivity is an absolute mirage. It's impossible to it's impossible to obtain. Okay, we're all creatures of our time and place, and we'll bring in certain biases and subjectivities that no matter how hard we try, we just can't get rid of. We just have to accept that. But there is something uh, uh, known as a little bit better objectivity than others. Several things contribute to a better objectivity. The first is spatial and chronological distance. Okay, spatial and chronological distance. Chronological distance should be obvious. It's better to be distant from certain events. Okay, um, if you want to talk about things that are happening today or five years ago, ten years ago, passions are higher. Not only are passions higher, you don't have as much uh, you know, empirical material, evidence to work with. You don't really know what the motivations and actions of everyone who were involved were. Spatial distance is also very useful. Okay, I, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, greater objectivity is usually obtained by studying parts of the world that you are further and further away from. <laughs> okay, um, so some people, you know, they'll, they'll every once in a while, not usually, but every once in a while, I, you get a sense. It's usually not expressly stated, but you get a sense. It's sort of like, uh, who am I going to be taking this modern Chinese history course with? Oh, Professor Jacobs. You know, who is he? That sounds like. Uh, someone who's not Chinese. So take a look at my picture. Hey, what, what is this white guy doing teaching us about Chinese history, especially if you come from China? Uh, what does he know about it? Um, well, I would turn that question right around and I would say, I actually would love to hear, to learn about American history from the perspective of someone who is not an American. <laughs> okay, I think uh, oftentimes the closer you are, both spatially and chronologically, to an area of historical inquiry, the more likely you are to be influenced consciously or unconsciously by various biases. Um, so anyways, spatial and chronological distance are crucial, and in this case, I was born in 1980, and I feel really uncomfortable uh, talking about uh, historical events that, to me, I actually have eyewitness memory of these things occurring. I don't feel like I'm distant enough from them to give you as objective as possible of an analysis. Um, I remember. I have firsthand memory of my parents with the TV on, CNN on, and watching news reports about what happened in Tiananmen Square in May and June of 1989. All right? I, I can still very clearly remember the TV reports and what they showed. All right? I can't say that for the Cultural Revolution. I can't say that for the Great Leap Forward. I can't say that for World War II, the 1911 Revolution, or anything. Those events are very distant. Okay? Tiananmen Square, uh, Deng Xiaoping. I remember Deng Xiaoping very well. I remember when he died. I remember seeing the newspapers when he died in 1997. 
I remember watching, I watched interviews of Jiang Zemin, who succeeded Deng Xiaoping. I remember watching interviews of Jiang Zemin on 60 Minutes, <laughs> okay, uh, to say nothing of Hu Jintao and today's Xi Jinping. All right, for me, that's too close. All right? Other historians might disagree. All right, and I know some other historians, people that I know that I went to grad school with. We do, we 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 compare notes for our, our syllabus. You know, oh, where, how far do you go in modern Chinese history? And they go well into the '80s, sometimes into the 21st century. And we have a nice little lively debate in which I say I don't feel comfortable doing that at all. I usually stop even before Tiananmen Square. Okay, I am more than happy once we reach. The era in which I have living memory of things that happened, I'm more than happy to hand the baton over to political scientists. All right, because to me, that's when you get into you know the nitty gritty of all the stuff that's happening now. Uh, political scientists have the tools; they're better equipped than historians are to give you some sense of you know the big themes and what's going on and and where we're going in China and whatnot. Okay, um, but not me. But not me. So I'm going to give you some big themes that are sort of you know large guiding signposts to help you think about China in the big picture, okay? The big picture and not get bogged down in, oh, today Donald Trump said this, he's doing this with China. Xi Jinping responded with that. Oh, what does this all mean? That's what I dread more than anything else is getting requests from journalists um, in which, you know, they say, oh, uh, you know, President so-and-so just said this, uh, you know, China's, uh, uh, you know, um, premier uh, just said this or just did this. What does it all mean? How should the, the U.S. respond? Uh, where is China going? What does this say about China's, you know, long-term trajectory for the future? And what I really want to tell them, sometimes I'll be like, all right, I'll do this. Um, but what I really want to tell them most of the time is we don't know. I don't know. He doesn't know. You don't know. And anyone who says that they do know is bullshitting you because they don't really know either. I really want to say that sometimes because it's true. That's what I truly believe. Okay. Talk to a political scientist to handle that. Don't talk to a historian. All right. Now, that said, we've gotten that all, all out of the way. What are the big things that we need to understand for China since Mao? Mao dies in 1976, okay? With that, you can have a gradual uh, disassembly, I like that, disassembly of the Cultural Revolution, all right? It's not overnight, it's not sudden, okay? The immediate effects of the Cultural Revolution will still be omnipresent in many people's lives well into the early 1980s, okay? Now, what immediately happens after Mao Zedong dies? All right, dies in 1976, all right? You might know that Deng Xiaoping eventually takes over and rules for about 20 years or so, all right, 1978 to 1997 when he dies. So what happened in those two years in between, 76 to 78? Well, you actually have this interesting historical footnote that many people have now forgotten about. There is a man named Hua Guofeng, Hua Guofeng, the Hua Guofeng Interregnum. Who the heck is Hua Guofeng? All right, well, the Chinese Communist Party would usually like you to forget about Huang Guofeng as well. Uh, he eventually lived his later life, his final years, uh, in some, some measure of obscurity. Uh, didn't get a whole lot of attention when he died. I think he died in the early 2000s or mid-2000s. Um, Huang Guofeng actually was Mao's chosen successor, not Deng Xiaoping. Mao was, was, was uh, um, careful never to purge Deng Xiaoping beyond rehabilitation. All right, Deng was always in a different category for Mao, okay? Deng was a useful, capable, talented administrator um, who Mao thought there was always going to be a good use for this guy, but Deng was never so high profile that he constituted a direct threat 
to Mao's position. Mao never really felt totally threatened by Deng. Sometimes he felt that Deng had to be cut down to size, and so he would purge him. Uh, Deng is famous for being purged three or four times uh, during his career, and always being rehabilitated eventually once he, you know, kowtowed down to Mao and did all the appropriate obeisances and whatnot and apologized that he'd changed and everything. Uh, Mao was always willing to bring Deng Xiaoping back. All right, which gave his career uh, legs all the way until he eventually died. But Deng was not Mao's chosen successor. What Mao wanted was someone who would not overthrow or change his policies in any way whatsoever. Mao is trying to reach beyond the grave with his decision of who's going to succeed him. Okay, He always had this fear that he would be treated like Stalin. A very well-founded fear, because that is exactly what would happen to Mao. He would be treated exactly as Khrushchev and the Soviets treated Stalin. Okay, But he did his best to make sure that that wouldn't happen to the extent possible. All right, And so in order to try to extend the longevity of the things he managed to institutionalize during the Cultural Revolution, he chose a fairly anonymous toothless party bureaucrat who he felt had complete and total loyalty to Mao, and precisely because his entire career was entirely dependent on Mao's patronage, Mao felt secure that Hua Guofeng would never cross him, would never repudiate him. This reminds you of anything? If you've been listening to these podcasts well back, you know, into ancient China, you remember we talked about with, uh, a, a, a occupational group called Dependent Intermediaries, Eunuchs, if we were talking about a southern agricultural Han-led uh, imperial dynasty, um, and it was going to be some sort of hereditary military caste if we were talking about the nomad-led northern hybrid states. All right, People who were drawn from the margins of society or the margins of China in an ethnic sense, uh, displaced from their origins in which they had no other support except for the patronage of the emperor. They're utterly dependent on them, and as a result, they can carry out special tasks that are deemed too sensitive for people who may not have 100% loyalty to you. Remember Zheng He, the guy who does all these seven maritime expeditions, very expensive military undertaking? He's a eunuch. He's a dependent intermediary. Okay, the Yongle Emperor never would have given that job to us, you know, an official who came up through a system that he didn't totally control, where you might have competing uh, 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 patrons for your loyalty. All right, so Hua Guofeng's in this mold. All right, The very reason that Mao says, you're my chosen successor. With you, I can rest at peace. With you in charge, I can rest at peace. That's what he's reported to have said to Hua Guofeng. I think it was actually written down. Okay. Um, so after Mao dies, Hua Guofeng, uh, who used to be the party secretary of Hunan province, I think he was actually um, originally a, an official in charge of Mao's home county. All right, Shaoshan Village, where Mao grew up, the county um, that that village was a part of. I believe Hua Guofeng was the you know the party bureaucrat of that region, and then he gets promoted as he gains Mao's favor. Also, you know, there, there's this this uh, uh, hometown connection where Mao feels he can further trust them because we're from the same area of China. Um, so Ma, so Hua, Hua Guofeng takes over, um, and he's sort of you know cognizant that his all his power derives from Mao having chosen him as his successor uh comes up with the three whatevers whatever Mao said whatever Mao did all right whatever Mao proposed this is what we're going to continue to do i'm going to do whatever Mao did all right Mao would be smiling in his grave if that were biologically possible Okay, uh, because Hua Guofeng did exactly what he wanted him to do um uh, you know someone who's not going to shake things up not going to change anything now, the problem for Hua Guofeng, however, 
okay, is that larger forces are at work here. When Mao dies, so too goes the cult of personality, his unique ability to inspire loyalty and action from people. No one's going to cross Mao while he's alive. All right, he's shown he's capable of taking down anyone by one means or another. All right, but when Mao dies, his support no longer um, is, is bulletproof. Okay, his main people that he was patronizing, or Lin Biao is already dead now, okay, uh, but it's, you know, Hua Guofeng, Jiang Qing, his wife, their power was utterly dependent on him. Jiang Qing, that's another form of a dependent intermediary, really, when you think about it. Um, and when he's gone, they're suddenly vulnerable, although they don't quite know it yet, okay? Um, and they think they can continue his, their source of power from him if they just do whatever he would have done utter loyalty to Mao. Um, but with him dead, that doesn't work anymore. And so what happens is that the people who suffered most from the Cultural Revolution, from Mao's purges, from those horrible 10 years of anarchy and chaos and struggle sessions, they now have a vested interest in trying to overturn. Not everything. You got to be careful here. You can't repudiate, you know, Mao himself. He's the symbol of your entire party. You can't do that wholesale. But now what he did was so ruinous, was so all-encompassing that you have to carefully, surgically repudiate some of it. You're going to have to pass judgment on Mao. And when you do that, the people whose legitimacy springs from Mao's former patronage will suffer. They will go down with him. In fact, not only will they go down with him, they will go down harder than Mao because you need a scapegoat. Because you can't blame Mao 100% for everything. You have to keep his portrait up over Tiananmen Square. So you can't take Mao down completely. What you're going to do is the big blame is going to be on the people uh, who were patronized by him. Jiang Qing is going to get the worst. Jiang Qing and the Gang of Four. Uh, Hua Guofeng will not be seen as having done anything criminal. He's not going to be purged uh, violently or anything. Uh, he's not going to go to jail. Uh, but he's certainly not going to maintain his lofty position as the leader of the party, the leader of the state, uh, for, for, for much longer. So, very soon, after 76, Deng Xiaoping, you know, he's re re rehabilitated. He starts coming back and he says, you know, in reality, on paper, I don't have any grandiose titles here. Hua Guofeng outrakes me in every single possible way because of Mao's bequest. But informally, everyone supports me. They realize, after the death of Mao and Zhou Enlai, um, I'm, I'm one of the most senior surviving of the old revolutionary guard. I'm one of the most senior surviving people who hasn't been, uh, killed, you know, uh, Liu Xiaoqi, Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, Zhu De, they're all gone. This is a wonderful opportunity for Deng Xiaoping to basically say, I will rehabilitate all those who suffered during the Cultural Revolution. He has the allies informally. And so he'll begin this process of, you know, he's not, Deng Xiaoping will never really have any lofty title for the 20 years that he's going to be in charge. Uh, but informally, he has the networks. He has the support. Everyone knows he's the most talented remaining member of the Revolutionary Guard who has the most allies within the party. And he's willing, unlike Hua Guofeng, he's willing and has a vested interest in repudiating selected parts of the Cultural Revolution so that we can all move forward. And so Hua Guofeng doesn't last very long. He lasts about two years, 
1978 is when most people think that Deng Xiaoping had consolidated enough power where he started to, to you know, brush aside Hua Guofeng in uh, public appearances. All right. Suddenly it was Deng Xiaoping who was making the important announcements, making the important trips overseas. Deng Xiaoping will eventually do a trip to the United States. I think that's in 79 or 80. Um, I always forget the exact dates. It's right around either late Carter or early Reagan administration. Okay. Um, now at the same time, when Deng Xiaoping takes over, he, they need to pass formal official judgment on both Mao and the Cultural Revolution. And I like to think of Mao at this stage as an indispensable impediment. He's indispensable because he's the face of the party. You can't get around that. Okay? Uh, but he's an impediment because, as we, well, stuff we talked about in our last episode, he's an impediment because he actively sought the destruction of much of the party and its accomplishments um, in, in, in pursuit of his own personal power grab and making sure that he and his source of political legitimacy, revolution, was always on center stage. All right? It's time, finally, to move beyond revolution. Okay, Deng Xiaoping is a member of the old revolutionary generation, but he wants to move beyond revolution as being the basis of policymaking. He realizes we really, really need to get the policymakers in charge, the technocrats in charge. They need to, These are people who know what the hell they're doing. They need to be making policy now. All right, the revolutionary era has passed. It needs to be turned into nostalgia, into old kitsch. It needs to be, you know, Mao is a talisman hanging from a taxi driver's rearview rear window. It needs to be on matchboxes. It needs to be on, you know, badges and old little, you know, tourist trinket crap. That's what it needs to be relegated to. In other words, what I'm saying here is that the post-Mao leaders, Deng Xiaoping and his allies, wanted to repudiate Mao as a policy as a policymaker, but retain him as a national symbol. Okay. And as I said before, domestically, the PRC now, their situation in 76, 1976, when Mao dies, is very analogous to that of Taiwan. The Republic of China, around the exact same time period after it lost its UN China seat. Now, I don't like to make you know exact comparisons with the dates because it's a little complicated. When you get into the details, you realize, okay, the Shanghai Communique, that's 1972. That's the document in which the U.S. agrees there's only one China and Taiwan's a part of that China, basically ending any hope, any chance whatsoever that there would ever be a separate Taiwanese state. Um, but that actually happens in 1972, and the United States agrees to withdraw recognition of the Republic of China on Taiwan in that year, but all the red tape and bureaucratic, you know, all that crap takes forever. It's not actually until 1979 um, that the ROC withdraws from the UN and the PRC takes over the China seat. So basically, you know, the 1970s, let's just say middle of the 1970s, all right, the PRC, the Communist Party, and the Nationalist Party are at a crossroads. They need to redefine the purpose of their existence. Like Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party, as a result of the Cultural Revolution and also the Great Leap Forward, really, has lost a great deal of its political legitimacy by this point. Okay, It failed to fulfill its grandiose promises. Taiwan's promise was we're going to retake the mainland and we, you know, we were going to be free China. It, it never retook the mainland and it was never free under Chiang Kai-shek. It was an authoritarian police state under martial law. Okay, the PRC, we promised you a com communist utopia, and it turned into a communist hell. <laughs> All right, so we failed as well. So, what are we going to do? All right, now there's a big difference between how the, culture, how the Great Leap Forward impacted the decision of the post-Mao leaders to treat the communist past, the Mao era, and what the Cultural Revolution did. The Great Leap Forward did not tarnish Mao or any top communist party leader directly. 
As I said before, most people in the countryside, despite 30 to 40 million people starving to death, very few people ever thought that Mao could have personal responsibility for what happened. No way that the chairman of the party, you know, this benevolent man, could be responsible for all of our misery. It's not possible. It must be, you know, bureaucratic underlings mediating his policies and hijacking them. Those are the people who, who created our, our conditions. All right. Mao was largely spared among the general masses. Okay. He wasn't spared within the party. Most people within the party knew damn well that Mao was responsible for the Great Leap Forward. And they tried to sideline him at the 6,000 Cadres Conference in 1962. And that led to the Cultural Revolution and that failed spectacularly. But the public didn't know that. Okay. The Cultural Revolution, that tarnishes Mao. Okay. If you read accounts and, you know, of uh, the public mourning and whatnot when Mao died, there was a sense of exhaustion. When Zhou Enlai died, there was genuine grief among many people in China. They thought that he had tempered some of the excesses. When Mao died, yeah, there was a lot of crying, but a lot of historians think that it was sort of, you know, forced crying, sort of the state ordering people, you need to cry here, it's going to be on TV, we need to show the world how sad we are. Uh, but many historians and eyewitness accounts say, you know what, it was kind of a pall over the city, it was a sense of exhaustion. All right? Mao was tarnished after the, after the Cultural Revolution. And everyone in the party felt dirty and tarnished as a result of the Cultural Revolution. Okay? As a result, criticism of the Cultural Revolution became okay within certain boundaries. Okay? Because those people who are now going to take over the leadership of China after the Cultural Revolution have a vested interest, their own vested interest in criticizing what just happened because they suffered too so in order to rehabilitate themselves they need to criticize their purge during the cultural revolution how do you explain that mao took me down mao you know sent me down to the countryside that's a big sin how do i explain that sin the only option is to say that mao was wrong in some way jiang ting was much more wrong but mao has to have some blame there in order to rehabilitate myself. Therefore, the general public would be encouraged and allowed within certain boundaries to criticize the Cultural Revolution and vent their anger and sorrow at what happened, at relatives who committed suicide, who died as a result of struggle sessions, who were psychologically destroyed. This would lead to what's known as scar literature. Scar. All right, people with scars, they survived it, the wound healed over, but it's never going to go away. It's with you. you. You endured some pretty horrible shit. And so you'd have short stories and books um, that would be published in which you would say, what happened to you? The horrible stuff that happened. This shouldn't have happened. Now, usually in these books, you don't blame Mao. Okay? Who are you going to blame? There's some blame for Mao, but not 100%. And this is where we get one of the great show trials of the 20th century. You need a scapegoat, a prominent scapegoat for the Cultural Revolution, and the chief scapegoat cannot be Mao. Mao's going to be tarnished a little, but his picture's not coming down from Tiananmen Square. So who's going to be the scapegoat? This is where we get the coinage of the phrase, the Gang of Four, the Surenbang. And Jiang Qing is going to be seen as the leader of the Gang of Four. Now, this is easy for most of the, the surviving uh, top Communist Party leadership after 1976. It's easy for them to take down Jiang Qing because they all hated her anyways. 
They, remember, these are the same people who said you, uh, to, to Mao back in the late 30s, early 40s in Yan'an, you can marry her, but she can't have a political role. And then he gave her a political role as, you know, to attack them when the time came. Um, so they already, there's a lot of bad blood with them. They want to take Jiang Qing down anyway. She's the perfect scapegoat. And along with her is going to come her closest associates. Okay, the three other Gang of Four members from Shanghai. One of them, the leader of the of the Shanghai Commune in that factory that was disbanded in 1967, and then two others uh, who were sort of, you know, her cultural czars that supported her, that she had ties with previously, um, and then assumed very prominent leadership roles during the Cultural Revolution. So, what is the official assessment of Mao and his Cultural Revolution? Well, Mao's going to end up getting precisely the Soviet-style treatment that he long feared. The installation of Hua Guofeng as his successor only delayed it by a couple of years, but it was inevitable once Hua Guofeng was brushed aside by Deng Xiaoping. Like Stalin, Mao was deemed by the post-Mao leadership to be exactly, and these numbers are exact, 70% correct and 30% wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what Khrushchev said about Stalin, 70% correct and 30% wrong. Remember I told you the Soviet Union was the reference point, the model, the framework for all the adaptations that, you know, communist China would do after 1949. Usually they actually, literally, they adapted the Soviet model, sometimes quite, uh, 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 quite um, se severely. Uh, here, they're just slavishly imitating it exactly the same percentage-wise. Not even like 75, 25, 65, 35, 70% uh, right, 30% wrong. However... Mao's shortcomings, his errors, were deemed, quote, political errors, not criminal offenses. Okay? They said, quote, in the official assessment of Mao, they said, quote, Mao overestimated the role of man's subjective will and efforts. He was divorced from reality towards the end of his life. And he had entirely unrealistic expectations of the imminent arrival of communist utopia and he violated the objective laws of history. The objective laws of history being Marxist stages of history. Remember I said you're supposed to go slowly and all that, and he tried to leapfrog them all? Okay? These were his political errors. They were deemed to be mistakes of red enthusiasm, leftist enthusiasm, and too much confidence in the awesomeness of the Chinese people. This stuff can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. Okay? The Cultural Revolution as a whole is Mao's doing. But whenever you get bloodshed and deaths and, you know, and that really horrible type stuff, Mao is not the person who's chiefly blamed for that. Okay? He's just too enthusiastic. He's too much of a revolutionary. Alright? You, 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 you can deplore that, but you don't condemn it. It's just an overabundance of enthusiasm towards the same sort of passion that nonetheless led to our victory in 1949. Oh, that's Mao. Too much of a revolutionary. Ah, shucks. That's sort of the, you know, the take that you're getting here. The people who did the really horrible stuff, that's going to be quarantined. That's going to be confined to Jiang Qing and her three supporters and the Gang of Four. This becomes a mantra. The Gang of Four, what they did, that's labeled a criminal offense. A criminal offense. Okay? And this becomes a mantra. If you read the SCAR literature, if you read even today, 
when people on the mainland, if it goes through official censors, which they all everything has to, um, if they talk about the Cultural Revolution and the bad things that happened as they're allowed to talk about, you have to blame the Siren Bang. You have to blame the Gang of Four for all the worst stuff that happened to you. Okay? Not Mao. Not Mao. The Gang of Four. And so they have this whole show trial, which is actually televised. And, you know, the whole country can see Jiang Qing and her three supporters uh, going in front of the camera in a courtroom, uh, being tried for their offenses. And famously, Jiang Qing, uh, she was defiant. Some of the others were very subdued, and they knew that they were fucked. They, 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 they knew it was over. They knew it was a show trial. This wasn't true justice or anything. And they just sort of went through the motions, hoping that they wouldn't get executed. Uh, Jiang Qing was defiant. She actually gives some good theater. She, she knows it's all bullshit, but she's not going down without a fight. Okay, um, and watching her courtroom proceedings is actually quite entertaining because she 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 has these memorable lines. She'll say, "I was Mao's bulldog. When he told me to bark, I barked, and we all had to do that." Okay. Uh, nevertheless, they all get death sentences. Uh, eventually, these death sentences will be commuted to life in prison. Uh, one of them, I think, one ends up getting uh, an early parole, and uh, you know, early parole meaning you can go under house arrest. You're not going to have any true freedom. Uh, one or two get something like that. Um, Jiang Qing um, it remains in jail, and I believe it was in 1991 uh, she committed suicide. She had an opportunity. I think she was sent to the hospital for some sort of cancer, and she was able to take the opportunity while she was there um, to commit suicide and kill herself. Um, and that's the end of Jiang Qing, a very sad, sad story. If you're interested in Jiang Qing, if you're interested in the Mao years, I always recommend my favorite book, The Private Life of Chairman Mao by Dr. Li Zhisui, Mao's private uh, uh, doctor. Uh, he talks a lot about Jiang Qing because he was constantly butting heads with her. Okay. All right. Now, with Mao safely relegated to an abstract national symbol, the new leadership can finally proceed with steady economic development without the constant specter of destabilizing revolution and red politics. Deng Xiaoping, after he pushes aside Hua Guofeng, he has these famous lines in which he says, uh, you know, I don't care if the mouse if, if the cat is uh, white or black, as long as it catches mice, we're going to use that cat. Oh, if Mao was smiling with Hua Guofeng, you know, and his three whatevers in his grave, uh, he would be rolling over in his grave when he hears Deng Xiaoping say that. All right, for Mao, it absolutely mattered if that cat was white or black. Okay? It absolutely mattered. He would prefer... Uh, a black cat, well, he'd prefer a red cat. But let's just say here that black e equals red. If he, he, if he had a black cat who couldn't catch mice, Mao would rather live with mice running around than to say, you know, the black cat's no good, let's go with the white cat. Okay? Because he depended on it. He had to play to his revolutionary credentials. Uh, Deng Xiaoping now is saying, you know, no, no. All right? I don't care what color the cat is. If it, do if it gets the job done, we're going to use it. All right? And that sort of embodies the new ethos of the post-Mao era that Deng Xiaoping comes to embody, okay? The new justification for the, the continued monopoly on political power of the Chinese Communist Party after the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, the new justification is we will bring daily prosperity to everyone at the micro level, not just make China strong again at the macro level. I already did that, Okay? Now at the micro level, at the, at, at, from the perspective of your daily lives, from when you wake up in the morning until you go to bed at night, we're going to make your life more materially comfortable. 
All right, and that's why we should be in power because we're capable of doing this better than anyone else. We're going to raise living standards for everyone. Dung has another famous line at this time too: "To get rich is glorious." Another thing that Mao, you know, would make him the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. Oh my God, no! Oh yes, to get rich is glorious. And he'll say, he'll go back to those stages of history. Remember, this all has to be justified officially on paper in terms of stages of Marxist history. Even as the Communist Party becomes less and less communist until today, it's almost a joke to call it a communist party and China a communist state. Uh, you still officially on paper, when push comes to shove, you have to justify everything in terms of your ideology. Right? You have to maintain that fiction. You can't let it go. Okay? And the fiction says what Deng says is we never achieve socialism. Remember all that thing about Mao having an unreal, un, unrealistic idea of how fast we could go through the stages of history and the imminent arrival of communist uh, utopia? Well, we're just going to say, you know what? That's where we went wrong. We actually never got to socialism, much less communism. We're still transitioning between feudalism and capitalism. So we need to get to capitalism first. Okay, we're going to do it properly this time. And who knows? It might take 100, 200 years to reach a proper capitalist stage. How convenient, right? So now the Communist Party can go on and, keep, and just keep saying, yes, we're a communist party. Yes, our ultimate goal is communism. That's the most advanced, developed form of human society. We're still going to get there. It's just going to be in accordance with Marx's original stages, orthodox Marxism. It's going to take generations and generations, perhaps a couple centuries before we get there. And in the meantime, we're going to get rich. And we're going to become filthy, wealthy capitalists. And that's okay. And it doesn't matter what color the cat is, we're going to use it in order to reach capitalism. Okay? Um, so, you know, he goes off and he eventually, you know, Westerners love this. The Western capitalist countries, they're so relieved. Okay? China's taken over the UN seat. Uh, you want to invest in China, the huge market. When they get someone like Deng Xiaoping saying these things, his famous lines about the color of the cat to get rich is glorious, they're all sitting there, you know, rubbing their hands going, oh boy, we're going to be able to invest in China and tap that market soon. And Deng Xiaoping has this famous celebrated tour uh, in which he travels the US, he goes to Texas, he wears a cowboy hat. You know, this classic, Americans eat this crap up. They love it. And Deng Xiaoping knows they love it. This is wonderful propaganda. All right. Later on, when I was growing up, I remember Jiang Zemin. He takes over after Deng Xiaoping. Um, and, you know, he, he does this interview with 60 Minutes on CBS. We used to always watch 60 Minutes. I used to hate it when my mom would have 60 Minutes on. It was on Sunday night, and you'd hear that creepy tick, 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 tick of the clock. And every time I hear that, even today, if I hear the tick, 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 I think, oh, Sunday night, tomorrow's school, homework, shower, all this sort of thing. I still have this visceral Pavlovian response uh, to a tick, tick, tick of a clock because of 60 Minutes. But anyways, I remember the interview that Jiang Zemin did that one time. And, you know, the interviewers, the CBS interviewers, Morley Safer, whoever it was, they, they want to act like they're hard-hitting journalists and they ask the tough questions and all this. So they ask him about Tiananmen Square. And I think one of the questions was, you know, what do you think about the tank man? That man who was famously pictured in front of the tank, you know, not letting tanks go by and then eventually gets pulled off. And, you know, is he in detention now or whatnot? And Jiang Zemin, you know, he's catering to an American audience. He knows what they want to hear. And he quoted he quoted, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln's, either it was Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or it was the Declaration of Independence. It's probably the Declaration of Independence. Something about, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, basically saying to an American audience, I don't know what happened to the tank man. I hope he's okay. Um, but we believe in your values. Okay, we believe in your values. This is all propaganda for foreigners. 
Okay, Deng Xiaoping did it, Jiang Zemin did it. Now, after this, by the early 1980s, this is when you start to get the first appearance of the staples of light industry. Remember light industry? Heavy industry, light industry. Light industry are the material comforts that are in your household. All right, not steel factories, not the stuff that helps make nuclear bombs and sends a man to the moon. All right, uh, the things like fans. China's a hot place in the summer. <laughs> you know, eventually it'll be AC. But first, let's just start with fans. TVs. Okay, this entire period, no, almost no one has had a TV in their house. Now, by the 1980s, you can actually buy a TV, a refrigerator, a radio set. Right? These sorts of things, the products of light industry. Okay, Every household can aspire by pooling their income, working hard, saving up, using black or white cats, whatever the color it is, catch that mouse, make that income. Get rich is glorious and buy your house a TV, a refrigerator, a radio. Okay, even rural households would be able to begin to acquire these sorts of things. They're referred to officially as the four modernizations. We're going to modernize agriculture, industry, defense, and science and technology. All right, and you are going to get the daily fruits of this four modernization. This stuff is geared more towards you, not just the abstract wealth and strength of the country. Okay? And as part of this four modernizations campaign, these new slogans that get broadcast through official state media in the late 1970s as part of Deng Xiaoping's uh, rise to power, he wants to say, you know, it's going to be different from now on. We're, we're going to modernize things. We're open to reform now. Okay? Uh, you get what's known as the Democracy Wall Movement. Late 78 extends into 1979, in which on a, 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 a brick-covered wall on a street in Beijing, you start getting people who put up big character posters, just like they did during the Cultural Revolution, which kicked off the Cultural Revolution and the Red Guards, and the Red Guards over 10 years earlier, in which they start saying, how about a fifth modernization? What's the fifth modernization? Democracy. You've talked about modernization, agriculture, industry, defense, science, and technology. How about politics? We noticed that there was no list of politics in your list of what sort of modernizations you can do. Let's modernize politics and have some democracy. A very uh, man who, the most prominent activist who was putting up the calls for democracy as a fifth modernization, a man by the name of Wei Jingsheng. Wei Jingsheng uh, will eventually be uh, uh, apprehended, uh, tried. Uh, sentenced to be a counter-revolutionary and sent to prison. I think he goes to prison for about 15 years, released briefly in the early 1990s, and then he does the exact same thing again, advocates for a fifth modernization, sent back to jail again for a couple years. When he gets out, this time he's deported, and America takes him. I think he's now living in the United States, runs some nonprofit about trying to you know, promote democracy in China. Okay, um, What this tells us is that there will be reform after the Cultural Revolution. There will be room for diverse voices that criticize things that happened in our past, but all within boundaries that the Chinese Communist Party lays down. Okay, you can only criticize those elements of the Cultural Revolution that we say you can criticize. Okay, we can only reform those aspects of Chinese society that we say that you can reform. Now we have true democratic centralism. You didn't really have true democratic centralism during the Mao years, because Mao could always reach outside the party and disrupt everything. It was a one-man authoritarian show. Now you have true democratic centralism, in which there is no one real head honcho who can override everyone. 
there is a true consensus in power sharing. Yes, there's one guy who's a little bit more powerful, Deng Xiaoping or Hu Jintao, whatever. Uh, but they really do have a team, a group of people who have who share a significant amount of their power. And you need a consensus among them. Democratic centralism, not d- democracy for the whole country. You don't get to decide. We do. And there's democracy only at the top. Okay, And anyone who takes the calls for reform further than we're willing to sanction, you're going to be sent to jail still. That hasn't ended. The monopoly of power by the Chinese Communist Party still exists. Yeah, we know we have freedom of speech and you know written into the Constitution. Doesn't matter. All right, you take it farther than we than you know you're allowed to take it. Then we want you to take it. You're still going to be suppressed. Maybe not executed or killed like in the old days, but you're going to disappear. You will disappear. Okay, so there are limits to reform. We're going to reform, but on our terms. Okay. It's sort of the irony of the Cultural Revolution. I always like to point out the irony of the Cultural Revolution. All right, the reform that occurs, I mean, it happens really fast. It really does happen pretty fast under Deng Xiaoping. Without the extreme depredations of the Cultural Revolution, the pressure to reform so dramatically and so quickly might not have been so great. In fact, I think that by fighting so destructively against the return of capitalist and revisionist weeds, as he liked to put it, Mao may have sped its arrival considerably because he did so much damage that those who survived the cultural cultural revolution came out of it and said, never again, never again. And now you've damaged our legitimacy so much. We have to go you know, headlong and do a new search for legitimacy, which is to get rich as glorious, to make immediate economic advantages and benefits appear for every single man and woman in China probably wouldn't have been able to go that fast if Mao hadn't done so much damage to so many people in the party to the point where they all agreed, yeah, let's reform. Let's save to get rich is glorious. Don't you love these little ironies of history? Uh, it's right up there with the irony, for me, the, the other big irony of the 20th century, and the Japanese um, claiming to hate the communists so much more than the nationalists. And, uh, you know, and they say we're invading China to prevent the rise of communist in China and com- communism in China because they said the nationalists aren't truly fighting the communists. Uh, they're facilitating their rise. It's total bullshit. Uh, that was the nationalist problem is that they were fighting the communists too much and not Japan. Anyways, so Japan invades China on that pretext. Um, and then their invasion directly leads to the success and rise and takeover of the Chinese Communist Party in China. Uh, those are two of the most delicious ironies of the 20th century. Um, okay, now, re-engaging the non-communist world on equal terms. That's what's happening. That's from a bird's eye perspective. That's what has been able to be happening in China since the rise of Deng Xiaoping. For the first time since the Qianlong Emperor and his arrogant, haughty letter to Lord McCartney sent by King George III in 1793 when the British sent an embassy to Beijing uh, hoping to set up a permanent, uh, sent a delegation to Beijing hoping to set up a permanent embassy. And the Qianlong Emperor haughtily looks back at them and says, we don't need anything that your country produces. We're self-sufficient. We're so much more powerful than you. Why would we make any concessions to you? We do the tribute system here, Mr. McCartney. You you kowtow down and crawl up to us and kiss my feet. And maybe, maybe we'll give you the 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 uh, uh, pleasure, the the uh, privilege of doing some dirty trade in our realm. Now get out of here! All right. Not since the Qianlong Emperor has the Chinese world been able to be in a position to trade and interact with the rest of the world on terms of equality. 
Okay, the reason? The successful establishment of a heavy industrial base in the PRC in spite of Mao's constant interference and his quote-unquote continuous revolution. Remember, even during the Great Leap Forward, so economically catastrophic, China was still a net exporter of grain to the rest of the world. That's why everyone starved, because they were still selling this stuff on the international market, primitive accumulation, remember? They're still selling that stuff on the international market to get cash to invest in heavy industry. And that's why there was no grain for anyone to eat. Okay? Urban factories and the heavy industrial sectors were always the least affected and the least disrupted during any of the multitudinous political campaigns of the Mao era. All right, remember the classic example is the one I gave last time. The forcible disbandment of the Shanghai Commune in 1967. When workers in a major factory in Shanghai take Mao's call to rebel and seize power, seize the means of production seriously, and kick out the Communist Party representatives who oversee work in their factory and take power for themselves, that's when Mao says, Whoa, Nelly, I didn't mean for you to go that far. No one, no one disturbs industrial production in our factories. <laughs> okay, let me give you some statistics to illustrate this. From 1952 to 1977, you have an 11.3% increase in the annual expansion of the industrial, the heavy, the, the, the heavy industrial sector in China. That's as good as it gets. The industrial workface, workface, I guess you could say workface, workforce increases from 3 to 50 million people. Now that's a true proletariat. The technical intelligentsia, the experts, the engineers, the ones who make all those blueprints, all right? Go from 50,000 people in 1952 to 2.5 million. All, that all those engineering degrees in universities, the Soviet Polytechnic University that we talked about, they really paid off, didn't they? Now, China can produce, without the assistance of any foreign power, not even the Soviet Union, they can produce their own airplanes, their own fighter jets, their own tractors, their own atomic bombs, their own satellites to send into space, their own ships, their own missiles... From the beginning of the Mao years, 49 to 76 to the end, China goes from having an industrial sector the size of Belgium, tiny little Belgium, not even one of the European powerhouses, to having one of the sixth largest industrial sectors in the entire world. All this in spite of Mao's insanity. Okay, so the larger bird's eye view and significance here. China now finally has the domestic industrial base and the sovereign unified economy that foreign powers and Japanese invasions had prevented it from acquiring for the past 100 years. Now China can rejoin that same world order from a position of strength with the tools necessary, i.e. the atomic bomb, to ensure mutual respect and a fair negotiation with all other powers, no matter how powerful they are, without a credible threat of invasion. See, in the old days, even though they went to the negotiating table and everyone said that we're equal, the Chinese side knew that if the British made, you know, oblique threats that we might invade or do this or that, they might actually carry through on those threats. And so you got to sort of cater to their interest and, and make concessions. Okay? Now, if the United States or Britain or France or whoever make some little oblique threat, oh, if you don't sign this, if you don't let us do this, or have this amount of tariff, or, you know, or tax-free goods here or there, blah, 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 um, we're gonna, we might, you know, 
um, built, you know, send some soldiers to Hong Kong. China, that's not a convincing bluff anymore. China says, fine, invade us. We have an atomic bomb now. Okay? That's the lesson of the nuclear era. You're able to build an atomic bomb. No one invades you. That's why we went into Iraq, but we didn't go into North Korea. And it's also why we don't go into Iran. All right? Those who actually have nuclear programs get respected in the world of hard-nosed international politics. China included, since they tested their bomb in Xinjiang in 1964. Now, this doesn't mean that the common people prospered. Remember? Remember that. The Mao years were pretty rough for almost everyone, especially if you didn't live in a city. All, right? All this achievement that I'm talking about, it's a very abstract achievement in the lives of most people. Sure, now China has autonomy from foreigners, okay? But most of the wealth that we produced over the past 27 years, it went to things that most people don't see every day, okay? Like the atomic bomb. No one even saw it. It's just sort of this abstract knowledge. Oh, now we have this great weapon, and that'll keep foreigners from invading us, and that's sort of good for me in the long term, isn't it? But you have to kind of put all the abstract dots together, Okay? Buying a TV and a refrigerator, uh, that's really in your face, but you don't get that till the 1980s. Okay, so for the, the Mao years, you're sort of, you know, all the wealth that gets produced, it's all siphoned off for very abstract purposes, and most people are still suffering. It was tough. It was tough, a lot, and a lot of people had to suffer to produce that untouchable wealth for abstract achievements. Okay? Now, China can spread prosperity among its people more broadly without fear that such a redistribution of its resources will allow China to be bullied by other powers, okay? In order to do this, to truly allow people to make money and to embody the idea that to get rich is glorious, you need cash investment by means other than primitive accumulation. That's got its limits too, okay? What is the solution? Foreign investment from the wealthy first world. That's what you've been missing for so long. That was one of the tragedies of the communist takeover in 49, is that it's so difficult to get investment from the wealthy capitalist world. What this means is that the communist world is generally poorer to begin with. It was very hard to seize power in a first world country. Okay, They're poorer to begin with. And then because you have such hostile relationships between the wealthy capitalist first world countries and the communist states, uh, the wealthy countries aren't going to invest in your country. All right, They're too nervous to do so. You know, it's, it's just, there's too many impediments to doing that. Okay, so who are you going to trade with? Who are you going to invest with? Other poor communist countries. Remember, the Soviet Union invested almost, you know, very little. It was very disappointing to Mao and the communist leaders to find out how little the Soviet Union was going to support them with hard cash. All right, now you can re-enter the capitalist global market from a position of you know, strength and invite investment from the wealthy first world, but there's going to be a crucial difference with the past. The terms upon which this foreign wealthy investment will take place are China's terms. And if you don't like it, no one's forcing you to invest in China. But there is not going to be any more obscene, imperialist profits like before. We're going to do it on our terms, and most of the wealth is going to stay with us. And our people are going to benefit. Oh, yeah, mostly our people will disproportionately be communist cadres. Uh, but still, there'll be enough trickle-down wealth to the common people that they'll continually feel like their lives are improving. Okay? So what you get with Deng Xiaoping 
you get the appearance of what are known as Special Economic Zones, the SEZs, and they begin along the southeastern seaboard. Shenzhen, the city of Shenzhen, right across the border from Hong Kong, you know, about as far south as you can go, will become the most famous of all of these. Okay, why do most of the SEZs take place in the distant south? Well, first, you don't want them to be right next to the, the heart of the, you know, political realm, uh, Beijing. Uh, second, um, a lot of the capitalist first world countries that are wealthy that you want to attract their investment, almost none of them have direct flights to mainland China. Okay. Um, and so, or if they do, there's not that many. Okay. Those transportation links are not geared yet towards going straight to the mainland. All right. Where they are geared towards, towards Hong Kong, the British colony. Okay. They're geared towards Hong Kong. Um, you want access to the Hong Kong market itself. You want access to all the other countries that funnel their business dealings through Hong Kong and Hong Kong banks, including Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore. With the exception of South Korea, they're all in the South. Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, remember I had the, the, the podcast on Taiwan. There were no direct flights until I believe 2005 or 2006. Previously, you always had to fly through Hong Kong. I remember my in-laws doing that all the time. When I first met my wife and I met my in-laws in 2002, they still went to China all the time. And they always flew Taipei to Hong Kong and then Hong Kong to somewhere on the mainland. And I remember it was a huge novelty for me when suddenly there were these direct flights. Like, whoa, seriously? You can fly from Taipei to Chengdu? Taipei to Shanghai? That's so weird. It's not weird anymore. But back then, it was weird. So everything came through Hong Kong. Everything came through Hong Kong. Okay, uh, so Shenzhen was a natural location for the first S, you know, special economic zone. Now, what is the allure of foreign countries investing in China? All right, beyond the huge market. Another reason that you want to invest in China, simply as a place, even if you're not going to sell in China, because there wasn't a whole lot of income to buy foreign goods yet. There is now, but back in the 80s, there wasn't. Even if you can't necessarily sell in China, to, to begin with, you can at least export your factories there and get cheap labor. All right, but... China's not the only place that has cheap labor, okay? This is something you got to understand. Why do you, what is the attraction of China? There are other countries that are unified, relatively stable, and have a cheap labor force. India comes to mind right away. Why not go to India? In India, you get the, the added advantage of almost the entire population working for low wages, uh, being relatively unified, not a whole lot of prospect of huge political or, you know, military instability or anything, and they speak English, Anyone who's been to school in India has learned English as their common tongue. It's a heavy accent, of course, but it's still English. There's very little English ability among your, your, the, the, the type of person who's going to work in an, a factory in China on the assembly line does not speak English. Okay? Um, so that seems like an added barrier to going to China. Well, I'll tell you what's so attractive about the China market. You have a cheap and endless labor force that does not have the ability to strike. This is very cynical and cruel, right? But it's one of the attractions of China for foreign countries. Set up your factory here, and we guarantee a stable labor force that isn't going to ever be disrupted. All right, No more disruption to the economic workforce. <laughs> They're not going to go on strike, or if they do, we will suppress that strike. All right, This is an endlessly exploitable labor force with a new floating population that is now pouring out of the rural area into the cities to take advantage of these new opportunities. 
all right? And foreign countries can now invest in these chosen, the, 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 these chosen, chosen special economic zones, mostly all in the South, okay? You'll have eventually 14 more seaboard, eastern seaboard cities, again, largely in the South, although they'll end up having some in the North as well, uh, that'll be designated special economic zones, SEZs, over the course of the 1980s. Foreign trade quadruples, then quadruples again. China becomes the factory of the world. A very common phrase, shi jie de gongchang, all right, the factory of the world, okay? And it's the factory of the world on China's terms. You come here, you'll be able to make money, do your business for cheaper, but we're going to retain the lion's share of the profits, and it's going to be on our terms. Now, we see this sort of stuff all the time. You hear cases in the news in which you'll hear about, you know, some foreign businessman or whatnot from England or Canada or America. Well, oftentimes it's not America. So, you know, usually the Chinese government doesn't want to take on a fish that's too big. Uh, they usually try to get some of the smaller countries who they think, all right, these people really aren't going to push back. But regardless, uh, this is a regular feature of the news cycle now in which you'll see uh, some businessmen, uh, some foreign business will uh, get involved in some sort of shady type of business arrangement um, in China. Um, and, some, you know, the shit hits the fan and bad stuff happens. And what usually occurs then is that, you know, the ambassadors for foreign countries can get involved. Uh, but ultimately, the Chinese are going to decide the terms of how these sorts of affairs are going to be adjudicated. And usually it's not adjudicated in the sense that we think of as like a court and whatnot. Um, you know, people will be put under house arrest. Uh, people will be said, you know, if you don't turn over X amount of money, we're not going to let you go. Um, you know, uh, you, recently there was this case about the uh, Huawei telecommunications company in retaliation for Canada uh, 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 putting one of the heirs of that company in Canada on trial. They said, okay, we're going to put some of your Canadian citizens under house arrest um, and accuse them of crimes in China um, as, you know, sort of a bargaining chip for your own citizens, for our citizen being released in China. All right. Now, in the old days, that kind of stuff couldn't happen. China couldn't do that to people who were not its own citizens. Because people, you know, foreign countries had extraterritoriality. And say, don't you dare detain our citizens and put them in your backward, you know, incarceration system, prison system. We're more advanced than you. We're going to take care of our own citizen. We'll try them in our own courts. And, you know, sort of like military trials, they always get off. And I'm not really going to hold them accountable. Are you kidding me? Okay. Not so anymore. You go to China, you do business, and shit hits the fan. You're in China's hands. All right, your foreign embassy, they'll come and they'll give you a debriefing of your rights and stuff, but you're at the mercy now. And that's the price of doing business in, in China without the benefit of imperialist privileges like you had before. Don't like it? Then don't come to China and lose access to our market. It's on our terms now. No extraterritoriality, no bullying us around. That's the true achievement of the communist era in spite of of Mao's shenanigans. And I always like to point out for what it's worth, okay, is that from my point of view, and you might think differently, from my point of view, I don't give the Communist Party any particular credit for this, okay? The Nationalists would have been pursuing the same thing and eventually would have achieved it if they didn't have to deal with the Japanese invasion. If it wasn't for the Japanese, as Mao himself agreed, the Communists never would have come to power, the Nationalists would have consolidated control, and then they would have eventually recaptured full sovereignty and the ability to come to the negotiating table with the rest of the world on equal terms. Okay. They just had the misfortune 
to be precocious in their rise to power and be battered by foreign imperialists, especially the Japanese. Okay, and the communists had the good fortune to come to power after the foreign imperialists had basically already been driven out of China and not by them. Okay, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, end result is the same. Communists, whether they deserve it or not, they get credit for it. And that's the reality that we live in today. Okay. Now, the problems and tensions of reform. Well, the capitalist reforms and opening up to the world market require the gradual disbandment of state-owned enterprises. Remember that, uh, that iron rice bowl that so many people depended on? Okay. Um, and other urban social securities of the Mao era, as you start disbanding them, people lose access to things that they took for granted. These things were very inefficient. Inefficient state-owned enterprises. All right. Urban benefits that people got. Uh, it was expensive for the state to maintain. Okay, and as you start uh, letting go of those in the interest of being more profitable and more efficient and not having so much of a financial burden on the state anymore, which used to own everything, all right, you're going to have unrest. You're going to have people who are unhappy. You're going to have winners and losers in a capitalist market. We all know that's how capitalism works, right? Winners and losers. And the people in power just hope that the number of winners, not the 1%, those are obscene winners, but, you know, middle-of-the-road winners. It always hopes that middle-of-the-road winners are just substantial enough that you won't have major social unrest. All right, That's usually the hope of the people who are in power in any capitalist system. And you hope that, it, you know, the losers don't far outnumber the winners. Okay? But now you're subject in China to normal global market fluctuations, depressions, all these sorts of things, recessions. And the result is a turbulent 1980s. People are getting wealthier. They are getting more material goods. But remember Zhuangzi, it's all relative. It's all perspective. And it's not new anymore. Once you've had a TV for five years, then you get used to it and you want more. And you get laid off from your job. You had a, a profitable state-owned enterprise. Nice iron rice bowl. You don't have that anymore. And you had regular strikes and street protests in the 1980s. Tiananmen Square didn't come out of the blue. And part of Tiananmen Square that many people don't understand was that it wasn't all students. Students got the lion's share of attention. They were the shrillest. They were the loudest. They were the most articulate and had the best English. So they got interviewed by all the foreign reporters and CNN the most. And so they dominated the news coverage. But you know what really shook up Deng Xiaoping and the Communist Party? Is when the workers started joining the movement and got involved as well. When the workers at the People's Daily left their, their job and joined the protest march in Tiananmen Square when factories shut down because the workers went on strike and joined the protest. That's what scared the shit out of Deng Xiaoping and his top advisors. That's when they decided we need to crack down on this. It wasn't the students. Intellectuals, the China, people in power in China are never too scared of intellectuals. You always think you can bully them around, execute them, or you can co-opt them. You can bring them into the system. Okay, It's the workers, fittingly, that a communist party fears the most. And when the workers started protesting and got involved and factories started shutting down, that's when they decided this has to end. All right. Like in the 1911 revolution, it was sort of, you know, a small group of racist, shrill revolutionaries that got all the attention, but there are actually a wide range of people who were involved in the 1911 revolution, uh, who weren't all advocating for the same thing. It's just those militant nationalist anti-Manchu racists got all the attention and dominated the headlines. Same thing with Tiananmen Square. It was part of a larger disruption in the 1980s. Things were changing faster than perhaps the Communist Party wanted. They're losing control of certain sectors of the economy and the students became the most articulate protesters and voice of people who were widely discontented. 
And so they pursued their own particular, uh, you know, uh, interest, which was democracy, political reform. But lots of people were involved in the Tiananmen protests who weren't all that interested in political reform. They were like, you know, where's my iron, iron rice bowl? Where's all the prosperity that you promised? We got a little taste of it and now it's gone again. That's not cool. That's not cool. And common to all the protesters, all disaffected people in China, was the perception, and it holds true today as well, that the new capitalist order in China is not fair, as it's not fair in any capitalist country around the world. However, in China, there's a unique perception, which is not true in every other country in the world, that the new capitalist order disproportionately favors high-ranking cadres in the CCP and their close networks. How did this happen? After all wealth is nationalized, all capital is nationalized, the state owns everything, right? When you disassemble that system of state nationalization of all wealth, all resources, who is going to be best positioned to translate what is now political capital, access to resources, into private cash-based wealth? Who controls access to land permits? factory permits, all right, business operating permits, who's going to be, get a leadership position, who's going to be the next mayor of a city, there's no, there's no democracy, right, these things are chosen, they are not elected, who's going to get to decide who gets the paperwork stamped to invest here or there in that enterprise, it's going to be the people who had political power before, they didn't have cash before, but they had political power. Now, with the transition to a capitalist economy, they are the people who can translate former political capital into economic capital. And that's exactly what they did, and they're still doing it today. All right, one of the things I always like to do, and i got to be circumspect and careful about this so as to not offend anyone, but whenever I meet people who are from the mainland, whether they're, you know, sometimes students or, you know, people out in the suburbs of D.C. Um, and, you know, they have a nice house and whatnot. And we meet them in social gatherings. I always like to kind of probe, you know, what, what, what sort of family background do you come from? And you got to do this carefully because uh, most people don't like to reveal this sort of stuff. But I always want to see, you know, how far do I have to scratch before I find someone who's, you know, the assistant to the mayor of Beijing or something like that. And, you know, not surprisingly, you don't have to scratch very far. Scratch a wealthy person from mainland China today, and before too long, you're going to find some connection to someone who is in a political position, a high-ranking communist party position. And that oftentimes was the crucial leverage that they needed in order to get the opportunities to make them rich. Every once in a while, you'll see various reports, and the statistics change all the time, but more or less, these reports are in accord in their conclusion that, you know, oftentimes of the people who become millionaires in China today, in the past 20 years, 90% or more of them are uh, high-ranking CCP cadres or the children of these high-ranking CCP cadres. What about from here on out? From here on out, well, these are my last words of uh, concluding wisdom, if you can call it that, from a modern Chinese history narrative. China will and finally can, pursue its own path to modernity and do so largely on its own terms, at least with regards to everything that happens domestically within their, within their borders of the PRC. Today, from a bird's eye perspective, China is reclaiming its longtime position as an economic center of gravity for the Eastern Hemisphere and indeed now the entire world. And the West is struggling to adapt to it. Okay? Um, never would I have thought growing up in my early teens and whatnot that you would have 
the sycophancy that you see on display when Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping would travel to Paris and you would get whoever, you know, uh, the French president was at the time, um, you know, laying out the red carpet, having great fireworks displays, you know, decorating uh, the Eiffel Tower with a certain light scheme that extols the Communist Party flag and whatnot. That happened, you know, a couple of years ago. Or, um, and it happens all over the place. All right. Overt deference to China, uh, welcoming them in over, bending over backwards to please the leaders of China. Okay. Uh, the West is struggling to adapt to this. This is quite a difference from 100 years ago when China was regularly insulted by Westerners as backward and primitive and doomed to fall apart. Now it's the Westerners who are struggling to see, hey, you know what? This may have been a blip on the radar screen. If you take the long durée, if you take, you know, thousands of year view of history, China was always the center of economic gravity for all of East Asia and Central Asia and Southeast Asia, you know, North Asia. Um, and that was only briefly disrupted for about 100 years, 150 years at most in the 19th and 20th century. And even then, it was Japan that, did, that, that mostly displaced it, another East Asian power. Um, and if it wasn't for the rise of the United States as sort of a new extension of Europe and the ability to exploit all the natural resources of this vast North American land, if it wasn't for the United States, China probably would already be the undisputed new center of economic and political gravity in the world. But because you have this interesting historical uh, accident of history in which uh, Europe's brief hegemony, some might say accidental hegemony, uh, ended up being transferred to the United States and extended its life for much longer, uh, China's got a rival. <laughs> China's got a significant rival. Uh, but this is a different China than before. Okay. And I don't like to focus too much. Let, I'll let the political scientists focus on, you know, today Xi Jinping said that, Trump said that, you know, Obama said that, whatever. I don't do that. The overall picture is that China is back. And it can do largely whatever it wants to do that's different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world might consider one uh, standard, one model for development to be normal. And they say China's different. And China says, yeah, we are different. We're doing X, Y, and Z with Chinese characteristics. Okay, and you just add, all you have to do is add that convenient phrase onto the end and it justifies anything. We're like you. We're just as modern and advanced as you, but with Chinese characteristics, that explains any, any way that we depart from your model. And I've been surprised myself at how well they've been able to do this, despite so much criticism by other countries. Okay, uh, China just keeps on chugging. No one thought that they'd be able to withstand the juggernaut of the free and open internet. You know, oh, you know, rise of Google and Facebook and YouTube. How can they possibly keep out the free circulation of ideas? Well, guess what? They did it. <laughs> I was shocked myself. And they, well, they would have to create their own internet, you know, universe, their own ecosystem of the internet with, you know, a shadow version of YouTube, a shadow version of Facebook. They're going to have to have their own cell phones, you know, texting system, cell phone network, and then they're going to have to censor all of that. How can they possibly do it? They did. Unbelievable. They did it. They have basically their own internet universe. They have their own WeChat texting system. They've got their own version of Facebook, their own version of Amazon, their own version of Utah, and it's all under state supervision. I'm blown away that they managed to do that, but they did. That's the world we're living in now. China can do those things on its own terms. 
and they say to the rest of the world, tough beans. This is the way it's going to be. So we're, you know, the rest of the world is forced to respect blah, blah, blah with Chinese characteristics. Respect it or don't engage us. And not engaging China in its market is not an option for most of the countries of the world. We're in for a fascinating next couple of decades. I can't wait to see what happens over the, the rest of my life, however long that might be. It's an exciting time to see what's going to happen in world politics. All right. So this concludes our overview of modern Chinese history. We did it. I hope you've enjoyed the last 17, 16 episodes or whatever it is that we've been doing here. Uh, it's only going to get better from here on out because our next destination is Japan, more specifically the history of the Japanese empire in the 19th and 20th century. It is going to be wonderful. There's so many fascinating things to talk about. I hope you're going to join me for the next, oh, I got another 15, 16 episodes planned for the Japanese empire. We're going to talk about why Japan managed to overtake China, which had long been the hegemon all throughout East Asia. Uh, the assimilation of Japanese peripheral territories and peoples like the Ainu on Hokkaido, the Ryukians on the uh, Okinawan archipelago. Uh, we have the nature of the Japanese race and the many definitions that it's been through, redefinitions that it's been to. Uh, Japan's wars, the first time that a non-Western power in the modern era had managed to beat people with white skin, the Russians, and what a big symbolic victory that was. Uh, the Japanese Empire in Taiwan, in Korea, in Micronesia, the South Seas, uh, the wartime era, Manchukuo on the mainland, uh, Japanese imperial technology, the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere discourse about what we're doing all throughout Asia and why you should join hands and unite with Japan, all the atrocities, the comfort women, the Nanjing Massacre, Unit 731. And then we're going to, just to be fair here, we're going to talk about atrocities of the victors, the things that don't get talked about as much when you win a war. Dropping the atomic bomb on uh, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Was it necessary? Why did we do that? Did we have to do that to, to save so many American lives? Japanese cinema during the empire, the repatriation of Japanese citizens who had gone abroad um, and then suddenly had to be ushered back home after 1945 to a home island, quote unquote home island, that they had never known before. Uh, how Godzilla and Rashomon can be interpreted not just as wonderful works of Japanese cinema, but specifically in light of what they mean when the uh, Japanese empire has just been dismantled after 50 years. Regardless, any of those topics. Oh, Baseball, Japanese baseball in the empire. It's going to be fascinating. I hope you will join me for episode 42 of Beyond Huaxia. We will begin with the topic, why Japan overtook China. Music